Now, this is, let's say, the potential for intelligence. Now, the question is, what is, uh, where is uh, the most uh, exploitable potential, in the brain or in the body? Again, I believe that one thing is the potential, one other thing is the ability uh, of uh, being able to exploit the potential. That depends on how you look uh, for exploitation, so how do you optimize so in the optimization technique, what we observed in our many experiments is that there are pairs, brain, body, that are more able to work together to achieve intelligence and others that are not able to. My suspect is that one key aspect is in the, is in the um, let's say, uh, dynamics, the, the properties of the dynamical systems. Just to mention one, uh, let's say the time scale, the main time scale around which the dynamical system is working. To be clear, if you have one, the, we know the dynamical response of a, a soft body, okay, we let's say know, we can estimate uh, um, the uh, main time scale, we know that if we touch the robot, the response will be more or less immediate, some uh, tens of milliseconds. Uh, we also know the dynamical scale of a neural network, uh, which is even faster in this sense. For example, we know that a learning neural network can be can have a, a secondary time scale of adaptation that is much longer. We observe that in some cases this is this uh, well fits the other two time scales. In some other cases, it doesn't fit uh, the other two time scales. But we even currently don't know what is happening. We are just observing things that work and things that do not work. Uh, what we would uh, like able uh, to do is to, to, to characterize the properties of the systems in, our, in order to be able to understand what is happening and, and possibly to predict how to combine things together. In this podcast, I'm sharing my passion and curiosity for soft robotics, where we share inspiring stories about the work we do and how we can push the limit. I am Mara Dweeney, and this is Soft Robotics Podcast. Support for this show comes from Science Robotics Journal. I really find science robotics to be a great resource for reliable and tangible research where we can really push the limit of the science we do in robotics. Great way to stay up to date with the published article is checking out the released monthly issue. All the links will be included in each episode description. We will also happen to have a regular conversation on the most published science robotic articles where also you can contribute with your question and thoughts about the research. Thanks, Science Robotics, for sponsoring Soft Robotics Podcast. Yeah, I would like to first, I would like to define yourself for maybe for people first time listening to you. I would like to define yourself. Um, well, I'm an associate professor at the Department of Engineering and Architecture of, of the University of Trieste in Italy. Um, I'm working, uh, my research interests are mainly about uh, applications of machine learning and evolution computation. I try to give also some, let's say, theoretical contribution uh, concerning evolutionary computation, in particular uh, concerning a, a subfield of that that is 
grammatical evolution. Uh, however, in the last years, I started working with this kind of um, simulated robotic agents that are called uh, voxel-based soft robots, in particular a two-dimensional version of these robots that uh, is particularly suitable for doing experiments. The reason for which I started working on this is because I think they are a very interesting form of life, of course, synthetic artificial life. And this is indeed uh, another name that I could give to the interest of, to the research internet I'm, uh, let's say, caring about artificial life. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll ask you if you can tell us more the challenging question in that research line, especially in designing the morphology and shape of the shape of the robot. What are the chain questions when it comes to designing voxel-based design here? Um, well, there, there is uh, there is a quite broad literature, well, relatively broad, okay, but uh, literature saying that evolving uh, or if you want optimizing at the same time uh, body and brain is difficult, uh, mainly because uh, in this way. Uh, you, you are trying to optimize a brain that should be able to work with different bodies and the opposite. You are trying mm -hmm. to optimize a, a, a body that should be able to work with different brains. But this, of course, depends on the way, that how, how, how uh, big is this limitation, depends on the way you model, you represent what you're optimizing. If you, basically, if you, let's say there are two extremes, if you model and represent body and brain in a, completely independent way, of course, each one of the two can go along its direction and then it's quite difficult to find a way to make them work together. If, on the other side, you model uh, them, let's say, together in, in such a way that they are compatible by design, of course, it's much better. Finding, however, this way is hard and this is, uh, I think, uh, the main challenge together with how to optimize that, them for what to optimize them, but the, probably the main point is in the representation of what you, you are optimizing. And being a challenge, of course, it's also uh, something that you like to work on. I want to ask you for exhibit intelligence. Which one is significant to you? Is it the brain or the body? And do you think that you can exhibit intelligence slowly in the, in the, in the body itself using different architecture? Okay, this is... This is around the big topic of embodied intelligence. Okay, so uh, from another point of view, where is intelligence? Um, at the beginning, people think intelligence in the is in the brain, of course, because that's the place where cognition should be. Um, however, there are several uh, researchers, um, one, just to mention one, Stefano Nolfi, one of the fathers of the so-called Italian schools of robotics, uh, postulating that this, the, the intelligence is not necessarily in the brain, okay? Uh, let's say more broadly, I think that intelligence can be everywhere there is some space for intelligence, starting from the environment uh, up to the, to the brain and up to the mechanisms updating the brains. And if you, if you think that intelligence is a form of adaptation to the uh, current condition in the environment, then intelligence can be also in the longer time scale of evolution. Okay, so a mechanism of adaptation, not of a single agent or a single individual, but a mechanism of adaptation of a species of individuals. Now, this is, let's say, the potential for intelligence. Now, the question is, 
what is uh, where is uh, the most uh, exploitable potential in the brain or in the body again i believe that one thing is the potential one other thing is the ability uh, of uh, being able to exploit the potential that depends on how you look uh, for exploitation so how do you op optimize so in the optimization technique but also in how you represent what can be optimized and again that's the representation um, this is a very general let's say uh, discussion but going uh, to a specific case the case of uh, modular soft robots these are a particular case in which uh, the body has a quite rich dynamics because it's because of its softness basically okay what i mean with dynamics uh, simply speaking is that there is a behavior in a soft robot even if there is no brain even if there are no motors in the in the in the robot okay if you take a rigid body and place it on a table let's say and, and move it the body will remain the same okay exactly the same if you have a soft uh, body and you put in a table and touch it there are slight variation in the in the shape of the body this slight variation usually we don't think of them as a form of behavior okay because we understand that it's just a material doing its its work of a, a soft material but this is in some way a um, a form of behavior okay uh, think for example um, to a robot that is not soft but uh, it's composed by components that are so small that you cannot distinguish uh, the single component from the entire body and these components are able to move themselves okay in that case when you touch it maybe there is a um, a sensing phase a pro information processing phase and an actuation phase the robot or the agent is thinking is perceiving thinking and behaving in that case we see okay the intelligence is in the brain doing the information processing that transform the sensing into the the motion if we observe the same behavior with the soft material we think it's not intelligent but actually it's intelligent the material is intelligent so we have cognition we have behavior in the body just in the body there is not not even a brain okay this is an extreme example of course in our research we try to put also a brain inside a, a inside a voxel based soft robot so inside, inside a soft robot and so we have these two potential sources of intelligence the body its ability to respond to external um, signals let's say and the brain another thing that is able to respond to external signals uh, usually what to do is put things together try to optimize them from a very high level point of view so we just put uh, let's say start our optimization engine uh, in which there is a task to be achieved and in which uh, we are able to measure the quality of achievement of the task and hope that it's itself in 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 the let's say the entire robot will become intelligent will become able to to behave in such a way that the task is achieved but we are not uh, we are not asking the intelligence to be in the body or in the brain what we observed in our many experiments is that there are pairs brain body that are more able to work together to achieve intelligence and other that are not able to uh, achieve intelligence i think the net, next big big question is to understand how to characterize uh, these pairs 
in order to be able to predict if a pair, what what are the properties of a pair for being uh, uh, let's say for working uh, well together or not okay my suspect is that one key aspect is in the is in the um, let's say uh, dynamics the, the properties of the dynamical systems just to mention one uh, let's say the time scale the main time scale around which the dynamical system is working to be clear if you have one the we know the dynamical response of a, a soft body okay we let's say no we can estimate uh, um, the uh, main time scale we know that if we touch the robot the response will be more or less immediate some uh, tens of milliseconds uh, we also know the dynamical scale of a neural network uh, which is even faster in this sense for example we know that a learning neural network can be can have a, a secondary time scale of adaptation that is much longer we observe that in some cases this is this uh, well fits the other two time scales in some other cases it doesn't fit uh, the other two time scales but we even currently don't know what is happening we are just observing things that work and things that do not work uh, what we would uh, like able uh, to do is to, to, to characterize the properties of the systems in, our, in order to be able to understand what is happening and, and possibly to predict how to combine things together mm -hmm. that's a good point maybe i'll ask you again about the focus of best design here in the design space if we speak about the active and passive component of the robot design, the, what kind of maybe architecture do you think is interesting to achieve certain goal? The representation, should we all, yeah, I don't know if you have a scenario like should be all active or passive. How do you see the combination between passive and active in such a structure to exploit this intrinsic intelligence robot only, for example? Okay. Um, uh, the first words concerning this kind of robot were rooted in the physical realization of the robots okay and so basically uh, uh, the ability of um, a piece of the robot uh, of being active or passive were mostly related to the material but actually active was active without the ability to process any sensory inputs okay so it was a sort of pre-configured activity okay where uh, whereas passive was just a soft material um, after the first works uh, mainly the one by uh, Hod Lipson um, uh, researchers started thinking about uh, uh, let's say a finer degree of difference between active and passive okay so maybe uh, uh, vo voxels pieces modules of the robot that are more or less active not just active and passive but in, in this second stage of the research, uh, still there was no processing uh, inside happening inside the robot. The material was more or less active, okay, so maybe more or less able to, to impact physically on the, on the overall body. Um, but yet the activity was not determined by an external, uh, the relation with the environment. We started uh, um, proposing putting a neural network inside each each voxel in order to read the sensory input and then decide. So uh, the, now the robot is actually able to, let's say, decide the activity to be performed. So the degree of activity. This is in some. This is somehow a form of generalization because 
with that, with that neural network, you could have a voxel doing nothing, so let's say passive, and a voxel doing something, let's say active, okay? But when you introduce the ability to process the input, basically you are generalizing, so that's no more just active and passive. That said, that said I see uh, several uh, interesting lines of research that still uh, distinguish pretty clearly between active and passive. One possible thing that we are discussing with a couple of colleagues uh, of other universities in Europe is to, let's say, um, exploit uh, the modularity of this kind of robots um, and merge it uh, with the softness with the aim of seeing if we can take any modular but rigid robot, replace just some parts with a soft uh, component, but in doing this completely changing the behavior of the overall robot, okay? In that case, the nice thing is that the soft part could be formally passive, okay, without any, uh, let's say, active actuation, but since of the, because of the properties of being uh, a soft module, what, you, what uh, uh, comes out is that there is a new source of intelligence, of cognition, as, uh, as we said before, and so the overall behavior of the modular robot is different. Note that here a key part is, not, is that we are not dealing just with soft and hard materials, but we are dealing with soft and hard materials, intelligence, where we can put intelligence, and modularity. Modularity here is a key concept, okay? We are not dealing with one single thing, but we are dealing with the interaction, the interaction of many, let's say, simple things. That is itself a further source of cognition, because usually the, in this interaction is itself a dynamical system. So basically what is happening in one module is not just the instantaneous result of what is happening in the other modules, but is somehow delayed because there is some need for uh, communication, okay, for spreading of information, and this delay basically constitutes a state. Having a state, we have a dynamical system. Having a state and having a dynamical system, we have a possibility for intelligence. Wherever we have some dynamical systems, there is some degree of adaptation, as, and as I said before, adaptation can be a form of cognition intelligence. Mm, that's an excellent point. Maybe I want to ask you here the correlation between the material in general, the material selection. Maybe sometimes there's limitation or maybe the end goal would fail because of the material selection and the voxel design. Do you have any situation that limitation for the material when you said what kind of properties were active and, and stiff? Active and passive, for example. Do you have a limitation for design space when it comes to the material to achieve certain tasks? Yes, uh, of course. Um, I mean, I believe uh, there are some limitations. There are some, uh, even more than limitations, there, there are some combinations of materials that could be better from some point of view or some other point of view. However, let's say, fortunately, I deal mostly with simulation. So basically, mm -hmm. um, I, I simulate what I, uh, I, together is quite easy to be simulated, but... Uh, expressive enough to, to be interesting. To be clear, when, when we simulate a soft material, basically we simulate a, um, a composition of a spring and ampere systems uh, that simulate softness. Uh, of course, this is just a model of softness and 
this model for sure, which is itself a dynamical system, for sure has an impact on the overall ability to host cognition. So maybe what we discover in simulation uh, is, is not easily uh, reproducible in, uh, in the real world. From this point of view, I mean, this is not a new thing. There is a quite broad and, and uh, alive top, uh, um, field of research dealing with the so-called reality gap. So uh, what, which is the, the degree of disalignment that there is between uh, what you observe in simulation as a result of some optimization and what the optimized artifact is able to provide in, in the real world. Um, at some point, uh, I would like to do in reality what I'm doing in simulation. So try to build these robots. For the case of uh, for the case of voxel based of robots, there is a they, they they could be particularly interesting because they are uh, a genuine implementation of the modularity framework. Okay, so they are really modular. I mean, we are talking about simple uh, uh, cubic blocks uh, boxes that you can, in principle, assemble as you want. And so the maximum degree of modularity. So if at some point we were able to build them, that uh, will be a, a, a very uh, nice achievement. But the point is how to basically have softness and actuation together. There are many proposals, pneumatic actuation, either, um, uh, let's say, stimulated by the uh, external environment or by uh, an internal, uh, let's say, actuation system that could be basically a set of pipes connecting all the models, but they are not practical. There is the very interesting case of the Xenobots, uh, however, that are pretty peculiar from this point of view. I mean, a lot of work to be built, assembled, and then actually you cannot put a, a, a neural network inside of them. Okay, so, however, we saw that neural network is not the only way, so the brain is not the only way to obtain intelligence, as you say. And there are other, other uh, uh, let's say, promising, uh, Ways that probably uh, at some point will lead us to will lead us to to have these physical realization forms, uh, nanomaterials, uh, chemical gels. Uh, but I think that we are very uh, currently far away from this. At some point, I would like uh, to be able to say, uh, okay, the, the the general properties about where is cognition, how to characterize where where is the place where cognition can be. Uh, can end up being as a result of optimization are the same regardless of the material. At some point, the material is just one parameter of the many parameters that are in the system. Of course, this is a very simplified yes. view that I, ca I can afford because I'm just simulating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that. I want to maybe ask you about um, peculiar design or maybe results. For example, in Xenobots, you mentioned if they have in simulation fully active, for example, or soft and stiff, they must have this combination. It shouldn't be in evolution, only one component. I don't know from your experience, do you have any result was interesting or peculiar, um, the way of the design of the active and passive to get certain behavior. Do you have this moment was counterintuitive or was interesting behavior that you found in simulation? Well, there are a couple of interesting cases. Um, uh, there is, uh, for example, there is a common behavior that uh, uh, comes out of simulation that is vibration, is uh, and that is, that is probably unrealistic. I mean, in simulation we see that many of our 
robots end up being very fast in locomotion. Locomotion is a typical task that we uh, deal with in which basically the robot has to run as fast as possible along a, a flat or a slightly, let's say, uneven surface. Um, one very successful behavior that we find quite often, depending on how we, let's say, represent the brain, uh, is this, this vibrational behavior in which basically you see the video and the robot uh, looks like it's steady but it's moving very fast. This is interesting for two point, from two points of view. First, it's not that actually unrealistic because there are a few, let's say, animals, uh, worms, uh, snakes, that do something similar to behavior, okay? Uh, sorry, something similar to vibration and are very effective in doing locomotion. However, it's not, of course, the same kind of uh, vibration that we see in simulation. On the other side, we know for sure that uh, it's unrealistic because if we are going to realize this uh, robot, and we are not, but if, if, okay, probably this behavior wouldn't be efficient uh, at all. I mean, probably the, just for the uh, slight variations in the numerical parameters of the uh, dynamical model, mechanical model uh, of the soft material, you can have a completely different behavior, no vibration or, or a vibration that is smoothed in a few milliseconds, something like that. Uh, another interesting case concerning the behavior and its relation, let's say, with the material is related to the specific objective that you try to optimize when doing optimization. If you just optimize for the uh, uh, for the speed, let's say, of the robot, but don't take into account any form of energy consumption, you obtain one behavior that is, I mean, very... Uh, um, the robot is moving a lot, uh, jumping a lot, and possibly also doing some spurious movements that are not functional to the locomotion, but are, are the result of this combined action of softness, or if you want, of the springs, and of the continuous actuation. If you instead uh, use a secondary objective or, that is minimizing en energy consumption or, of course, modern energy consumption, or you put a, a primary single objective that is locomotion efficiency, could be speed divided by energy, something like that, you observe a different, much more, uh, a much smoother behavior in which the robot may, is maybe moving uh, slowly. However, this is somehow I mean, pretty some, something that you can expect uh, if you take into account energy as an objective, you have a, a robot that is more energy efficient. What is, let's say, uh, more surprising is that the behavior is much more impacted by the nature of the brain. In particular, if the brain is able to, uh, um, in some way, prone to favor a very fast dynamics, then it's much uh, easier to observe vibration. Uh, and this again is related with the representation. To be clear, uh, and to give a, a possibly a easy to understand example, in these modular robots, one way to, comp to, to build the brain is to put a small piece of brain inside each module. Basically, let's say a neural network, okay? This neural network basically at each time step of the simulation, read the local sensors, and read some information coming from the uh, adjacent voxels, process all these, let's say, numbers and outputs 
the local actuation and some information to spread to the adjacent voxels. This information that travels to the other voxel is delayed by single, one single time step. By introducing this delay that is not zero but very small, you can easily obtain a vibration that has the same frequency of the simulation because of course this information is bouncing between pairs of uh, adjacent voxels and what you obtain are very fast contractions. There are of course environments that are very um, favorable for uh, vibration and robot shapes, let's say morphologies that are robot very favorable for vibration and other that, that are not. To, 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 be, to give an example, uh, we have a morphology that we call warm, that is basically a, a row of voxel, that is by nature very able to exploit vibration because basically there is this long surface and by simply making each voxel vibrate with the same frequency but slightly uh, different phases, the robot is very able to, is very fast in moving. Mm -hmm. That's an example, yeah. Maybe I want to ask you about the resilience or redundancy when, for example, certain part of the voxel is damaged or how do you see the reconfiguration um, and the structure or maybe intelligence to readapt? To I know there's some research on that, but I want to know from your perspective what maybe the key point to think about designing redundant structure based on voxel if there is damage or failure. Okay, this is about really exploiting modularity for reconfigurability. One key aspect of a modularity is that you can, let's say, replace one module. Um, doing this efficiently means ability to be, ability to discover that is something not working, ability to, to physically, let's say, replace it, and ability to make the remaining part of the robot uh, adaptable to the replacement. A lot of things. We try to cope to, to let's say tackle this uh, this big uh, scenario uh, one step at a, a, a time. Um, in particular, we did some research on the possibility of having a brain that is able to work even when some module is stop uh, working. Where stop with stop working, we mean that the actuation is not working or the um, sensors are not working. When I, when I say sensors in our voxel, I mean we have sense for, sensors for the acceleration along two axes, sensor for touch with the ground. In some cases we have a LiDAR sensor, basically a, an array of proximity sensors and so on. So one kind of, uh, one kind of damage that we considered is uh, the case in which sensor or actuation or both stop working and the uh, robot is able to still um, to, to still move, to still uh, achieve the task. This, again, uh, can be done uh, uh, basically because of the softness of the robot, so the overall behavior is not because every voxel is moving exactly in some way. The, the mechanical model is moving the inabilities, the possible inability of, of the voxel. And this can be done up to some degree. We did some experiments with, let's say, um, uh, plane controller, so a controller that uh, is basically a neural network, but we also did these experiments with learning controllers that are much more robust to, to the damages, of course. Learning controllers are controllers in which there are some mechanisms that change over the time the brain, it, hopefully making it uh, uh, learnable in some way. 
these learning abilities particularly interesting when there is a change, a, cha uh, a damage. A damage is a change in what by the brain is perceived as everything else. For the brain, the body is the environment, while for the body, the environment is the environment. But if you look from the point of view of the brain, one voxel that is breaking is like one stone that you find on a your way when doing a commotion so it's not particularly different so ability to learn a new terrain to work on a new terrain is similar to the ability to work with a new body totally new of course is very hard but a, a slightly different body is more feasible another kind of um, uh, let's say robustness to with respect to damages that we uh, considered in our past research is uh, when the when the damage is in the brain itself uh, in this case uh, we uh, we that particularly with again with neural networks as brain and the damage is basically some cut in the connection constituting the brain that is called basically pruning uh, we um, pruning itself is interesting because basically makes your network uh, much smaller without hopefully making it less efficient and less effective in doing the task uh, basically, it makes it, energetically speaking, more efficient because there are many, less signals, less information traveling on the network. So what we did in this case, this is a very recent paper that we uh, published, uh, is that we uh, evolved, optimized the brains of these robots, uh, making them experience some uh, pruning. Of course, these robots, we, and we found experimentally that these robots whose brain evolved with pruning is more robust to environmental changes, so terrains that are different from the one they observed during the evolution. When I say they, I mean the full ancestry, not just one single robot. And they are also more able to cope with the uh, um, damages in the, in, the, in the body itself. Finally, and this is related because it's not a damage, strictly speaking, but is a, a very, let's say, strong and observe a very neat change is the case of development one of the last paper that we got accepted is a paper in which we basically study the possibility that the robot is not the same the robot is not the same body for the entire life but this robot the body is developing basically it's growing okay and again this is very difficult because not only we evolve at the same time brain and body, but and so uh, I mean the same on the evolutionary time scale, the same brain could observe several uh, bodies. But during one single life of one single agent, the brain is dealing with different bodies, okay, because the body is, is developing. Um, in this work, we dealt with just a, uh, an increase in development so the body is the body is becoming more and more complex during the uh, life of the robot we are not dealing for, for example with the remotion of uh, blocks of models but again is a form of change uh, that should uh, for which the, 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 uh, the brain should uh, be able to ex exhibit a greater uh, degree of adaptation Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Maybe uh, a few questions. What do you think maybe still missing when it comes to voxel-based design here um, in soft robotics? What is still maybe missing here? Do you think about the shape of uh, the voxels, maybe different shape of the voxels? 
maybe the computation, how do you see? I think the paper is very interesting concept that Bruning mentioned. Do you think the computation time, how you think can be intelligent and very fast and reduced in computation? I don't know what may be missing in your mind still to be done. Um, there is uh, there is probably a, um, there is a recent paper by Gus Seiben um, that basically constitutes a, a very well-argumented uh, answer to this question. I think there are two lines uh, to answer this question. One is, let's say, research-wise from what uh, we as researchers should uh, care about uh, when uh, working with this kind of robot. And the other is more practical, what is missing for having, for having something that we can build, we can use, and so on. So let's start from the second one. Um, uh, beyond the difficulties that are in the fabrication of these robots, that is something harder that we, at some point we will solve, there is the other part, how to physically be able to assemble them automatically, okay? Because even if we are able to build the blocks, uh, the single modules, uh, efficiently, then uh, but we need to uh, um, manually assemble them, the scalability of the entire idea is not that great, okay? So, for example, we cannot just say, okay, pack a lot of voxel on a space shuttle, uh, make the space shuttle point towards uh, Mars, and then they will colonize the planet. No, because there is no one assembling them there, okay? So we need a way to make them autonomous in the, uh, in the assembly phase. And also, of course, not just one uh, moment in the, uh, in the time when they assemble, but they should be able to disassemble and reassemble again. So reconfiguration, um, uh, reusal of parts, uh, detection of broken parts, uh, maybe, let's say, fixing of uh, uh, slightly broken parts. A lot of, from one point of view, practical, but from the other point of view, very important matters that we should uh, care about. Then there is the other line, research-wise. Uh, one big problem here is the task. Uh, most of the research community works on the locomotion task. That is very nice, let's say very comfortable for us because we know it very well, we characterized it. But it's not, of course, the only task that a robot will face, okay? Uh, there has been a, a, a recent paper um, proposing a suite of benchmarks for two-dimensional voxel-based of robots from the researchers from uh, MIT. Uh, in which they introduce other tasks. Actually, we are doing the same in the lab, but they were faster, and so kudos to them. Uh, they, these robots now are in this benchmark. These robots are required to climb, uh, let's say, a small tunnel. They are required to bring an object. They are required to um, to, to uh, traverse a, 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 an environment, not simply just by locomotion, but but by doing things during the the task. And this is very nice. What uh, the next step probably is to somehow connect the tasks with some high order uh, um, kinds of abilities. So, for example, this is for more for information processing uh, of a given time scale. So the robot should observe and then decide in a later stage. This is for fast reasoning that could be locomotion. Locomotion basically is a very recurrent behavior whose time scale is of some seconds. Okay, so the robot doesn't need to remember about what it did 
one week ago. The point is that he has to move, so just remember what he did a few milliseconds ago. Uh, some for manipulations, some for, um, let's say, adaptation of the shape. So we should be able to have uh, tasks and, and connect tasks to uh, uh, higher order challenges. Okay, development, manipulation, memory processing, something like that. This is, I think, something very promising. Uh, there is, however, um, let's say the community is aware of this idea. We are working on it, but it's a long thing because, you know, when you propose a new, uh, when you propose a new task, you shouldn't just say this task is for my robot. You should say this is a task that is good by itself. And so for, uh, for supporting this claim, you should at least show that the task is, is good for several different frameworks, not just, I mean, software frameworks, but uh, theoretical frameworks, so voxel-based of robots, another kind of robots, and so on. So this is a very big thing, but we are uh, starting working on it. Mm -hmm. Maybe if you question lift, when you look to evolution, um, the combination of the hard and soft and, and looking for voxel-based design, do you think there's something, yeah, maybe... Uh, for look futuristic, um, maybe it still need to be considered or have more attention so that we can achieve what's happening in evolution when it comes to this combination in the stiff and soft. Um, a promising thing uh, is to uh, try to do all the things together. So to evolve, uh, as I said at the beginning, not to have two different representations, or even more than two different representations of parts of the robot, one for the body, one for the brain, one for the sensor, sensory apparatus, okay? This can be done, we already did a, a bit of this, but they are always uh, somehow, somehow unconnected and so unlinked, and so um, still you can optimize them, but you're missing something. We also know from biology that we don't have a DNA for the brain, one for the body, one for other pieces of us. We have a single, let's say, code encoding everything. Can we do the same in evolution for this kind of simulated robotic agent? I believe yes. There are a couple of researchers starting doing this. Uh, Sebastian Rizzi, we also did something like this. Uh, for example, this is also the case of the physical morphological development. Okay, we have a single representation uh, dictating the development, the body, and the brain. Yet these kind of so-called generative encodings are possibly very promising, also because they should be able to um, uh, to cope with different scales in time and in uh, uh, space. So basically, you can have one single representation not describing exactly one body, but describing how to build the body and how to build the brain, okay? And so you can re uh, repeat the procedure of applying that description, that generative description of different time scales, uh, sorry, space scales, and also possibly time scales. From this point of view, what is very promising is the um, idea of using the cellular automata, uh, um, uh, let's say computing uh, framework in which basically according to one single rule for updating the state of a system that is shared uh, among many uh, cells, you can have a system that evolves over time. Recently there have been uh, many research papers uh, proposing new ways to encode these rules, 
possibly using neural networks, but not only with that. And very recently, there have been cases in which this idea is being used uh, for encoding the brain of a modular soft robot or even encoding the way in which a modular soft robot will develop. So th there is a path that we are starting working on. Uh, there are a couple of research teams uh, working on this, and I believe that uh, it will be it will bring us some satisfactions. Excellent. Maybe the two question left. What makes you fulfilled and satisfied the research? Moment of fulfillment or satisfaction? <laughs> I believe this is very subjective. We we I mean, all of us as researchers, uh, each of us, okay, as a set of different incentives. Some of the incentives are uh, given, imposed, let's say, by our uh, system, that is the global system, the global research system, and our local system. So the country-based system that, for example, says when you can get promoted or when you cannot get promoted. And these are indeed very concrete incentives. Then there are the incentives that are more personal, the one that uh, basically um, are related to most to the way you work, the, the, how you studied, your personal life, let's say from one point of view. For example, uh, my one of my personal incentives is to try to write the paper uh, with a possibly outstanding quality, let's say in the presentation. I like to do a very nice plot, to use a very, uh, a very let's say, um, um, a, a wording with a very high quality and so on. Another personal incentive that I believe is shared among many of us is to uh, show younger researchers, to try to show, to advise and supervise young researchers in such a way that they will share your values at some point, but they will also have some success. Not, however, that it's perfectly normal that what are the incentives that actually impact on the way you work uh, change over the time. At the beginning of your career, of course, I mean, uh, probably the one concerning uh, the research system, the official research systems are more important because in some way you need to advance in your career. When you are later, probably you find more satisfaction in supervising students just for quality than for I mean, maybe collecting more papers or for doing the research you actually and really like, even if not a research that will bring you a lot of citation. So things change over the time. Uh, the, what is important is to have an overall view of what are the incentives and so you can select which ones you should uh, care more and which one you should care less. Mm -hmm. Lastly, I don't know if you received any advice maybe given to you and stick to your mind, maybe in the career or life. Hey, uh, uh, well, uh, in in my my career, I, my my PhD supervisor uh, indeed uh, is Alberto Bartoli is the one who suggested me to uh, work mainly towards quality, and that's a very important uh, very important uh, advice to me. Uh, actually, it's something that you appreciate when your network uh, uh, becomes larger. Because if, uh, uh, of course, when you're young and you work mainly in one research group, you don't have any opportunity. You have few opportunities to compare the quality of the way you do research with the, uh, the quality of other groups. So it's something that you appreciate later. So uh, 
for me this this has been particularly important i think that now i'm satisfied with the way i'm doing research mainly because i received this advice wonderful i don't know if you have any final words like to say for software bots community we'll be listening to you any final words like to say okay uh well the final word is that i I really like this further field of research. So embodied intelligence, where embodiment is given by, let's say, robotics. Okay, uh, I like to be in the middle, uh, not too closer to robotics. I'm not an expert of robotics. I'm not able to uh, model them mechanically very well, and not from the autonomous control community. Okay, so I'm not on that side. I'm not even on the side of pure intelligence, not an expert in uh, neural networks and so on, but I like to be in the middle. But I believe that this, uh, this is the, a very promising path towards the so-called artificial general intelligence. But even we, we shouldn't uh, think that artificial general intelligence is the only goal, okay? Artificial life or from another point of view, the possibility of creating a new form of life is possibly even more interesting, okay? Couldn't be that intelligent at the beginning. That's another thing. Uh, the conf the, 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 uh, where the threshold between not intelligent and intelligence is not so sharp. So we don't need to concentrate on uh, exceeding that threshold. We, we can just work towards having more autonomous forms of life created by us and see where we can act to make them more intelligent and more, let's say, alive.